Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jesse, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. On today's podcast, we talk about Ryan Murphy's ratchet and nursing as an expression of Filipino hospitality and care. But before we get into that, hey, Sigs, let's catch up. What have you been up to? Pop culture-wise, I revisited an amazing cartoon, which I love, called Archer. Have you watched it mm. before? I'm curious about it. So tell me about it. It is just this. Archer is a spy. His name is Sterling Archer. He works for a firm and he just gets bungling. He tries to be James <laughs> Bond, but he's just, he can be a little on PC and people have to deal with them. Lana is co-spy. His mother, Mallory, runs a spy agency. Now, this is going on 11 seasons. It got renewed for a 12th one. And during an earlier season, about four seasons back, he had a coma and went to a coma. And then for three seasons, they played off that he was in a coma and they went back to the 20s. They did a space season. They did an 80s season. They did like a jungle season. And finally, he woke up from the coma. So what you're watching is basically a workplace comedy with like the voices of like Aisha Tyler. Who's that lovely lady from Arrested Development? The one that plays the mother, Lucille Bluth. Oh, She's in yes, it. yes, yes, yes. Um, she, she, she plays Mallory. Yes, And yes. it's just the hijinks. It is totally a workplace comedy. It's a little un-PC. It's very funny. Like Archer has a valet that d- gives him drugs, makes sure he has his like turtlenecks that are off black. And it's very funny, lighthearted, but it's cartoon. And it's going strong for like 11 seasons, got renewed for a 12th. And he just started back up. He's out of the coma. And it's just that sort of hijink. So listeners, check it out. Archer, it's on FX. What have you been on into? FX. What have I been into? So Michael's been off for a couple of weeks. And so he ended oh. up actually subscribing to BritBox. And oh my so, gosh. Yes. <laughs> so we've been just kind of exploring that. And we're big Mary Berry fans. So we were sad to see her go when she had exited the Great British Bake Off oh. as it left the BBC and went to Channel 4. You know, she had said that the reason why she didn't follow the show was is out of loyalty for BBC. And mm. because of that, that kind of left a gap in the BBC schedule. So what they ended up creating was Britain's Best Home Cook, and this was in and around 2018. We've been actually watching that, and now we're on to the second season, which is, interestingly enough, had premiered in 2018, took a break in 2019, and then 2020 had a brand new judge, a brand new set, brand new everything. And they even changed the name from Britain's Best Home Cook to Best Home Cook. Mm-hmm. We found out that there was like a Me Too scandal with one of the judges and it was really Ooh. quite unfortunate. Yes, I know. It was like all wow. salacious in terms of sexual misconduct, unfortunately. And it was like poor Mary Berry being kind of associated with all of this. But the premise of the show, very similar to The Great British Bake Off, which is, <laughs> is that who will be Britain's best home cook and that they are up and subjected to three challenges or at least two challenges. And then, you know, two or three or even four people will have to face the elimination challenge. And then we get to that 
that competition in the end to a final feast. But instead of baked goods, it's usually a home-cooked meal. So it's like an ultimate family pasta you know, menu, or it's an ultimate sharing feast menu, or it's an ultimate brunch breakfast that you're having for oh family gosh. come over for a special occasion. Yeah, it's actually quite fantastic. It is food pornography at its best, actually. Are so. the contestants all in the food industry, or is it anyone no, that's just, just passionate just about food? Plain, plain simple, yeah. this is a side thing. I love cooking. Yeah, these are people that have other jobs, but uh-huh. love cooking and cook when they can. And so it's just kind of like Great British Bake Off in that these are all individuals that baked, that they do this in their spare time. These are all home cooks. And uh-huh. so there's lots of discussions on what makes a great home cook, which is very different from like being a, a restaurateur or a mm-hmm. chef in the restaurant business, trying to kind of, you know, have a part of the food scene. So it's been wonderful to kind of watch and it's been nice to watch Mary Berry And it's been nice to just kind of like unwind from a long day and then just kind of watch all of this where the biggest challenge is, will my pasta turn out okay at the end of the day? After watching the show, whatever, is BritBox a great subscription? So Michael also has on a trial run Acorn TV. And between the two, they Mm. both show British shows, but BritBox TV tends to have most of the BBC fare and some other stuff. But... I'd have to kind of defer more to Michael on that. But from what I can tell, he's tending to like BritBox. And so after its trial run, he's seriously considering actually subscribing to it. Ooh, I can't wait to hear more if he does. I'll bet you'll get to watch more shows. Yeah, Yeah, and and, you know, it's like, it's all these different platforms and it's so kind of funny, you know, like people have been kind of cutting their cable Mm -hmm. and the reality is that they're probably going to sign up for 10 or 11 different networks, you know, just like Netflix, which is kind of like the subject of today's show and and really kind of Ryan Murphy's latest like entry into mm-hmm. his however 50 million show shows deal with, with, with <laughs> Netflix like, how many shows does he have like committed to Netflix do you know I, I you know what I don't know but folks again I'm loving all these callbacks if you listen to our opening season episode in season two we t- we do an ode to Ryan Murphy and talk about his oeuvre of works like I feel like yes. they're just coming 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 like did, they just dropped a trailer for a musical he adapted from Broadway prom which is coming out later this month right like it's and then he put out boys in the band just recently that's right too. that's he right executive produced that and then just kind of redid that but the subject of today is really more specifically on ratchet i know that that kind of had both piqued our interest and we actually have a listener out there that ironically enough had said i hope you guys talk about ratchet oh so this is a shout out to june june this is somewhat dedicated to you in terms of us talking about this in any event yes so for those of you that don't know ratchet Ratchet is a character from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and quite famously, Jack Nicholson had starred in that particular make, but it's also based on a book, and Ryan Murphy decides to go back and kind of fill out the origin story. Interesting. Like, I have to just say, my impressions are is, is that it was stylish. What we know about Ryan Murphy is, is, is that he has a fascination with macabre. You know, yes, like being that's... dark and sometimes grotesque. I think we got a sense of that in Nip Tuck. And at the of beginning, course American, yes, at the very, at the beginning. very beginning. And then he went different ways with Popular and then eventually Glee. But in this case, he's come back to it, but in a much more stylistic, stylish way, as opposed to the gory stuff that we've seen in American Horror Story as well as Nip Tuck. But 
gorgeous, gorgeous costume styling by his designers, Lou Eirik or Eric and yeah. Rebecca Guzzi. And it's so fascinating because when Christian Dior had an exhibit here in Toronto a couple of years ago, I got to see some of the original new look silhouette dresses, which was actually really quite avant-garde. So it's interesting that they do almost an homage to this. So everything that Sarah Paulson is in is in a uh, Christian Dior new look silhouette. It's so fantastic and gorgeous to see. You totally brought up style points. It is stylistically beautiful. I think almost in the vein, uh, there's like, Ryan Murphy's hands are all over. You see imprints from like the Art Deco from American Horror Story Hotel. And you see the remnants of Hollywood, right? Like the gorgeous hues. And you're right. Stylistically, it's beautiful. You and I both know. I bet you there'll be Emmy nominations for makeup, the the hair, the clothing. It's quite gorgeous. It's picturesque. And in your head, you know, there's an ominous like feeling that there's storms and and like cliffs or whatever. But it's California, right? Is is it? It is totally. Yeah. yeah, it is in Southern California. And what's really interesting is as they go up and down the coastal highway, That's beautiful it. and scenic. So it's scenic and yet dangerous, like when you think about how windy exactly. and curvy these roads are, which is kind of like what this whole TV show is all about. And the colors are crisp and monochromatic at the same time. In fact, they kind of remind me of Dick Tracy and how Warren Beatty had directed That's... that with very yes. kind of like pure colors, like Dick Tracy in yellow, Breathless Mahoney, all in like sequence black. Tess mm-hmm. Trueheart, all in that kind of like red. So it was interesting use of color. And it was interesting use of color throughout the series. You'll find that there are times when the scene turns and glows to red or turns and glows to green or turns and glows to blue or whatever the case may be. And I'd read up on that and that that was all very purposeful, like either mm-hmm. trying to indicate anger or sadness or jealousy or some emotion, some really deep emotion. So Fascinating. Like, I think when Ryan Murphy puts his mind to styling, it, things are, as you had described, picturesque. You could literally pause every scene and it's a beautiful It's a photograph. Picture. That's a exactly photograph. it. I just like to go back. When you have, like, the twisty and winding roads, I think, mm. again, another metaphor of everyone trying to... I guess, travel a straight line, right? And everyone's paths are sort of obstructed, whether it be the character of Dr. Hanover fleeing from danger in his car or Nurse Ratched returning to her hotel, which is like almost like a cliffside. And it's just that twisty, windy road going in there. That's that's really, that's such a good observation because it really sets the tone. I never watched that. What was that show that was like based on the Norman Bates character? Oh, Um, Psycho. Yes. Yeah, it was that one with Freddie Highmore and Vera Farmiga. Like I thought in that same, like that's sort of like capturing that. Like, and we know it's Ryan Murphy because literally in the first few minutes of the pilot episode, like the cast is booming and he doesn't, like he's holding back the rest of the like all-star cast, right? You have Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. obviously the staple, which is Sarah Paulson and then John John Briones, Filipino, who, and Finn Whitcrock, Charlie Whitcrock, Charlie Carver that are the Ryan Murphy players. And then you have like Corey Stoll, Vincent D'Onofrio, Cynthia Nixon, Judy. Davis and Kuya, the priest in the first part that was hiding under the bed. Mm-hmm. Um, do we not love him? Hunter Parrish from Spring yes. Awakening. Yes, yes, yes. Remember? It was oh. so great to see all these people, right? Exactly. Like it, was so, it was so fun to see Sharon Stone. 
you yes. know, in all of that too, right? <laughs> and then, it, yeah, with the monkey. And it was so fantastic to see John John Brionis in all of that, which I have to just say, just yes. kind of segue a little bit here, yeah. that John John Brionis plays this doctor, this psychiatrist named Dr. Hanover. They really acknowledge how he's Filipino and having a Filipino background. It was just kind of interesting. It was like, oh, well, that's a really interesting nod. And so I'm glad that they were able to just kind of acknowledge that and just kind of fold it into the script without necessarily kind of trying to explain it away or whatever the case may be. But yeah, it was great to see all those Ryan Murphy players as you kind of uh, described it. And it was nice to see Cynthia Nixon. It was oh. nice to see Cynthia Nixon in there. I haven't seen her in forever since Sex in the City. and Miranda. And else that she's yes, and yes, yes, yes. The, the role that she plays or whatever as a secretary or like the representative from Vincent D'Onofrio's character is just really good. But she's always, I mean, in real life, we know that, remember, she ran for office in New York City. And yes. she's just, it's such a strong character. It's almost like he wrote that role for her. Like, I expect right. nothing less from Cynthia Nixon um, and playing that role. But it was chock full. Like, he got good Netflix money to cast all those people, which is he a good really thing. He really did. He did. Right? I, I do like the fact that, and now I'm only three episodes in and I'm going to ask for your advice in, in a few Mm-hmm. as we discussed, like, how did they work in his Filipino background? They did it in Hollywood with Darren Chris's character. Was it just a factor of, like, oh, he's Filipino? And that's just part of it, not the whole character of him? Is that how they Well, there of, were like, there were certain it? nods to his character being Filipino. And then I was thinking to myself, okay, Hanover, like, maybe perhaps he's Filipino-German and that, you know, maybe yeah. it's his father that's German. But it is interesting. There is a, if you will, flashback series that kind of explains all of that. That he actually, Dr. Hanover is his identity for sure. But Uh. you will soon discover the flashback of how he became Dr. Hanover. That's kind of interesting, right? I I haven't watched Hollywood. I remember you had watched Hollywood and did that taste test and had just said, well, you know, maybe it's not for us and stuff like that. And I thought, I'll just hold off (laughs) on a really snowy day to watch that particular series. But yeah, they do acknowledge it and then they get to it later. So you got okay, cool. to kind of hold on. Stick with it, right? Stick yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I know that some of the other observations that I've had about Nurse Ratchet and Ryan Murphy's Nurse Ratchet is that he still continues to kind of do this whole compare and contrast or bring things together in a contrast. So I don't know if you've already seen it in the first three episodes, but he seems to carry on with his fascination in pairing like the grotesque with the kind or the beautiful and the wicked. I, I I think you've probably been introduced to Huck. That's it. First, and you right? just, those, are, those are great descriptions when you're introduced to the, the, I guess, an orderly Huck that works there and seeing the acts that are done to the patients at this facility mm-hmm. and saying that this is wrong. And you see Ratched like debate, like, yes, this is, but the grotesque. And I, the example I think of is the the patient who is a, a lesbian, and then they put her right. in the. And just correct me. What's the type of treatment where the person was put in a really hot heat bath? They increased the heat, then they shocked her and put her in a cold bath a- afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that it was uh, that there was any name for that treatment, but certainly I think that they were doing some type of shock or aversion yeah. treatment of some sort so by, like aversion by doing yeah. that. And, yeah, um, and. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, I just, ahead. you really saw it, Nurse Ratchet and Huck's character. Like, what are we doing to her? What Nurse Bucket, Judy Davis, was like, we're doing this and I don't want to hear anything from you. And both of them are like, you're going to boil her. What, what's happening here? And they're seeing this happen. And then they tend to her after, after she's put in the cold bath and they lay the patient down. And they're trying to, like, comfort her. And they're just saying, this is what we're trying to do to people. This is going to help them, in quotation marks. Right. And you Bur- see that Burning really, people um, isn't going to actually do that. 
Yeah. yeah, like burning people isn't actually going to be helping people. And it's interesting that it's Huck, the person who looks or grotesque because he was burned in the war. That's right. That, and of course, listeners, we're not giving away Too that much, much yes. here. But what is fascinating about that one particular scene in terms of that aversion therapy is, is, is that it is the person who has been disfigured that actually says stop. You know, and I think that yes. that's interesting, right? Because if anyone had reason to just say, yeah, let's burn people, and you think it would be him because he would be subject to a lot of, if you will, discrimination or exclusion in some ways. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, right? Like the one that you think is actually not going to stand up actually is the one standing up. And, the, and you know, Ryan Murphy's known for this, I think. Like, I think yeah. he tries to do that as a surprise. And he does that later on with like Sharon Stone and Lenore Osgood, which is the character that she plays, pairing together this idea of the beautiful and the wicked. Usually beautiful people do beautiful or good things mm-hmm. or the heroes. But in this case, the beautiful person ends up becoming a wicked person in the end. And again, I'm not giving away a lot, but I just find it really fascinating that he is constantly telling this story. He can't get enough of it. And so he's constantly showing us different sides. So again, he kind of follows that up in in this series, Nurse Ratchet. What are your thoughts on how mental illness was dealt with in history? It just gave me flashbacks about reading psych books in university and stuff and talking about like shock therapy, aversion therapy, and how people, lesbianism would be classified as an illness when it clearly, right now, clearly it's not, you know, people are born the way they are. What are your thoughts, the depiction that Ryan Murphy does on mental illness and the way it was handled back then? Well, I think he was certainly trying to show that mental illness back then really misunderstood what mental health was all about and Mm -hmm. wellness is all about and that actually it was about releasing and convalescing and getting respite that if you were relaxed got respite and actually was released from your pain your mental illness would go away some grotesque stuff that was going on were these bizarre surgeries that you'll later find out and it was all in the name of releasing pain and it was like well Mm -hmm. that's clearly not going to release people's (laughs) pain And it ended up being really grotesque. I think the other thing that Ryan Murphy does with respect to mentally ill or the mentally unwell is he really is interrogating the idea of whether the actual medical community was present in helping. What I mean by that is, is were they really trying to understand them? I don't think that they were. And I think that that's what he was trying to say. I think that that's what what comments he was trying to make through Nurse Ratchet is is that they weren't trying to be empathic. They weren't trying to be kind. They weren't trying to be caring. They weren't trying to put themselves in their shoes in terms of why they were feeling the pain that they were feeling. But yeah, it was really grotesque. And so not understanding people's pain leads to grotesque things. I think this is the primary thesis of what he might have been trying to tell. I'm curious to know what you thought. I was just shocked. Like, this is what I remember reading about in textbooks. And then listeners or whatever, I think it was episode two or whatever, they were doing lobotomies. And mm-hmm. you see Dr. Hanover really explain it. And just, this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to continue. And not for the faint of heart, there is gore. And I think the warning on Netflix is like, gore, sexual scenes, smoking. Like, those are the <laughs> issues. And I'm like, really? Smoking really ranks up All there. All equivalent watch, stuff. I'll watch someone, like, smoke a cigarette versus, like, a screwdriver rammed up, up their eye. But oh I gosh, was just yes. shocked. And you're right, though. I was like, how does that help people? And Dr. Hanover's... Yeah. MO was like, no, we're going to help people. We're going to have this facility. We need the money from you, Vincent D'Onofrio character. This right. will be a good way to grab news. And I'm just like, wow, how far have we come? 
Yeah, and and it really just shows you, like, again, kind of that idea that I think back in the 40s, what Ryan Murphy was trying to say was the way that they understood mental health and mental well-being or being unwell was you have to release it, you know? So Mm -hmm. doing lobotomies will release that. Or this, and I have to say, this was the most fanciest, gorgeous hotel. Oh, yeah. uh, Hotel. (laughs) I I mean, that says it all, listeners, right? Because it looked like a hotel. It did not look like any institution I've ever seen. It was pretty gorgeous, yeah. It was pretty gorgeous. It felt like a Miami hotel, actually, See, is what art it deco. felt like. Art deco, yeah. right? It had that art deco look with art deco colors all over the place. Certain standard flourishes that you see in that type of decor. And I was just thinking to myself, hmm, like it's that idea of like we're away and having respite and relaxing so that we can get away from our anxiety or sadness or depression or melancholy mm-hmm. or inattention and stuff like that. So I just thought, hmm, you know, true. Maybe perhaps that decade had thought of it that way. I think today in terms of mental health and mental well-being, we think of it as really trying to be compassionate and caring and understanding mm-hmm. that people have different things that they're going through and that we need to be more, again, understanding as opposed to misunderstanding, which is, I think, what was portrayed. I have to say, though, that despite how beautifully filmed all of this was, (laughs) I have to tell you, I was a little annoyed by the pacing. Oh, yeah? I remember when I flipped it on, it was like eight episodes or something like that, eight or nine episodes, I can't remember. And I Mm -hmm. thought, okay, maybe he's actually going to tell us a really good story that's really fast-paced. But I felt it was a bit uneven at times. Like, you know, sometimes it was like, okay, quick, 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 and then slow. Quick, 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 and then slow in terms of plot development. So I thought to myself, it feels like we're doing a foxtrot in some ways, you know? (laughs) Maybe that was intentional, but I don't know. Like, I just thought... The pacing could be better, and you may see this. I think it kind of reminded me of the politician season two, where then suddenly, oh. boom, like, oh, like uh. we're we're about to start season, you know, two, but not really. So, I mean, it was a bit of, of a better setup for the next season, and we do know that this was given a two season run right uh, out of the box. Okay. So, you know, I will say perhaps Ryan Murphy was kind of thinking about that already and knew that it was coming to this type of ending. Okay. But I was thinking to myself, well, there was a sense of non-completion mm-hmm. and kind of like already on to season two at this point, kind of exactly what happened in The Politician where suddenly it's like years later, you know, Ben Platt's character is like suddenly at a piano bar. So <laughs> they didn't, in any event. They, and they so didn't that, need that, to rush that. But No, they okay, didn't so need to rush that. I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah, It's not as bad as The Politician in terms of doing a hard left, but it was just kind of like, oh, I see what you've just done. You've just set us up in a okay. lot of ways. And it felt like we didn't get enough notice that they were going to do that. The other thing that, uh, you know, that might I have in terms of a critique is, is that it, sometimes I didn't understand the motivations. I wouldn't understand why would suddenly Nurse Ratchet be fearful of this particular character or why would this, you know, Nurse Ratchet so quickly turn their feelings around. I just thought, hmm, like I didn't know if there was rushed character development or not, but mm-hmm. the, not all the motivations seemed to line up for me. And and again, this is kind of like my love-hate relationship with, <laughs> with Ryan Murphy and his ability to tell stories over the course of a season. I think he has an idea and then he wants to execute that idea, but to connect the ideas together, I think sometimes he doesn't and does it so spectacularly well. And then other times it's like, you know, he just found a convenient thing to do or say and to get him to the next plot point ends up feeling really artificial. So 
But I'm curious to know what you think of the so far the first three that you've seen. I, hopefully, I haven't turned you off. Oh of no, I was already and I stopped at three, and I was like, I'm gonna stop and. I wanted more, and I understand, and even you're right about the pacing at the beginning, because it was a slow, drawn-out, because at the end of the pilot episode, they create a link of the reason why Ratchet appears and trying to help right. at this facility, and yes. then after, I'm like, okay, we're getting a side story, I'm sure there's more to this, there's some flashbacks, and the relationship with her and Corey stole, and I'm like, I'm not following, okay, all right, I see, and... I don't want to be to be a victim, and I don't. It's not that I have a bad taste in my mouth from the politician, like second season of politician, which I did a taste test mm-hmm. on. I'm appreciating for the beauty and like wow, a snapshot of how mental illness was dealt with. And you said I'll, I'll try to stick out and try to finish on, but yeah, there is a love-hate relationship and we've delved into this deeply with Ryan Murphy and his oeuvre and there's many things I've liked and there's a lot of things that he's put out before where sometimes they're rushing it. I kid you not, guys, even before we did this podcast, I'm thinking in like the 2000s, like early aughts, I'd say, hey, Queer, are you watching Nipatuck? I I don't understand where they're going for plots here and you literally just said it like a few minutes ago. Well, when Ryan Murphy has a plot and he's trying to do things and make things tie together, we've had this conversation so many times in our career and that's like 14 years ago where you're like well see right. he's trying to do this and he's trying to serve the people but from production value and what viewers want like this isn't anything new we do love him we are big fans of ryan murphy and don't get me wrong but it's just some sort of pattern that we have seen and, and it yeah, makes me I laugh because w- i'm like oh queer this is like a normal conversation we've had i know this about is totally a normal conversation <laughs> i f- you know we i think we go up a spiral staircase when we talk about ryan murphy and again love hate relationship with him but sometimes he gets into device storytelling meaning that he will just take something device-driven to kind of move the story forward and it ends up feeling artificial. And then if there's really a huge plot hole, he'll do some type of backstory to kind of explain it all and say, of course. Or or drop it. Or drop it totally. Or drop it altogether. Oh my goodness. You know, can you tell a story from beginning to end and think things through? So I got to the end. It was okay. But I have to tell you one interesting observation in all of this. Oh yeah? Yeah, which was this. Great that they had a Filipino doctor in the midst of all of this and this is about nurses it was fascinating that there was no filipino nurse anywhere in all of this oh like gray's anatomy syndrome there yes exactly exactly (laughs) and it's not like we were in iowa or anything like that where perhaps maybe there wouldn't be any filipino nurses we're in california which was practically a gateway for filipino nurses which kind of like started from the very beginning of the 1900s, right? right. According to the Pensionado Act of 1903, where there was this kind of exchange visitor programs that promoted nursing students and scholars from the Philippines to come to the United States and all these laws and different policy regimes and even the Americanization of nurses once the Americans had taken over after the Treaty of Paris, the Philippines, did they start to kind of Americanize the system so that they were, you know, maybe they knew what they were doing or maybe they weren't, they didn't know what they were doing, but they were creating a system back in the Philippines to export care. And so, of course, we see it in hospitality in terms of caring. Mm -hmm. We see caring in terms of teaching, but more specifically, we see caring in forms of nursing. And so... At least in Canada, there have been three waves of immigrants and most of the Filipino nurses had come in the first, but primarily in the second waves. And that very much kind of mimics the Caribbean nations in terms of immigration into Canada. But it was fascinating, like 
no Filipino nurses. Like, exactly. Just, did, like, did you notice that too? Like, well, I was just like, why anytime, are there no Filipino nurses? Yeah, anytime we watch, like, a medical show, I lo- I'm like, is there, like, at least one Filipino nurse and stuff? At like, least? Yeah. At least yeah, one. I know. At least one. I know. It's, so it was just kind of disappointing to not see that, considering that this would have been a natural place to have seen them in the 1940s. It is natural. not actually unreasonable to have seen them. And the interesting part is, 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 is that there's been lots of kind of studies on the immigration of nurses from the Philippines to North America and different parts of the world. And what oh, yeah. they've said that usually is, is, is that the nurses from the Philippines tend to even do the grunt work of the nursing field. So some of the, if you will, missions or jobs that other nurses in North America might not want to do or in the Western nations won't want to do would be here. And of course you would see mental health and psychiatry like that. It was not seen as a high prestigious form of medicine and you would have expected to see Filipino nurses. So fascinating that that wasn't included considering that you know, nurses from the Philippines existed at that time. I won't belabor that point, but that kind of just kind of brings us into today's topic, Mm -hmm. which is kind of nursing as an expression of Filipino hospitality and care. I would say more in terms of care in a lot of ways. And that, as I talked about, you know, Filipino nurses have been coming to Canada for quite a bit of time, but mostly in that second wave in the 70s and 80s as care laborers is the way that I would kind of talk about it. And we've talked about it too in terms of Mary Beth's Prairie Nurse, which she wrote about and we talked to her about in one of our previous episodes in season two. And I don't know any Filipino in our community that doesn't have a connection to a Filipino nurse. Like certainly my godmother, my Ninang, is certainly uh, is a nurse and is a retired nurse. And she had taken care of for a long time people in the nursing homes. And so thank God she's not working during this pandemic and that she's retired. It would make me really worried about her. I know you have a personal connection. I do. My mom is a nurse. And she started in long-term care. And then when she was, I think I was about five or six, she went to nursing school in Canada. She did very well, graduated, and it was such a big deal for our family. And not only my family here in Canada, but in the Philippines that Segunda, my mom, Susie, she graduated. Now she's working as a nurse in long-term care, like chronic health at Shaver Hospital in St. Catharines. And it was such a big mm-hmm. deal. And from before that, my mom was a midwife in the Philippines. And mm-hmm. it was such a, important thing about like being part of healthcare and she ended up going to Belgium before coming to Canada and she worked in a hospital I want I don't know specifically it's not midwifery she was in but it was linked with mental health she had mentioned before working in a hospital and dealing with mental health patients in Belgium and then to coming to Canada she worked in a long-term retirement home and then eventually mm-hmm. she went back to school and she ended up being a nurse for many years um, until her 60s, and then retired, and then ner- became a nurse again, and she worked as a casual. So, yeah, I have a big tie into this, and it's so interesting. I think some of the things that you brought up about reasons why coming into Canada was a lot of healthcare workers or people right. from midwives. They would be midwife in the Philippines, and then they would school here in Canada and become a nurse. And it's very funny. As we talk about the immigration stories of many people and their job journeys, I remember my mom becoming a nurse, and then in that second wave of people coming in I think this was like the 80s and like late 80s and the 90s a lot of people that started immigrating who had become live-in care workers or nannies that wanted to go back to school my mom would help them and oh I have some textbooks or if you need a study group you have questions you know you're studying for your exams please let me know if there are volunteer opportunities let me find out if I know any contacts for the hospital
struggles. It was really the community helping each other out. And not only my mom, my Auntie Babes is a nurse also. My Auntie Josie, you've met too. They, she works mm-hmm. in a hospital also, and she works in St. Catharines also, and she works in like operation room prep. And there right. is a definite community, and there are many Filipinos. And mm-hmm. it's so intriguing and interesting. So when we do see it depicted in like media or whatever, it, it's representative. There are many Filipino care workers, and it's just a lot of the things why people come. We thought, discussed this before, and I don't mean to veer off so many. I met a colleague who's Filipino, and he was from Winnipeg. And mm-hmm. I didn't know. I said, oh, Winnipeg, hey, that's interesting. There's a lot of people. He goes, Kuya? And he didn't even know me. He just called me Kuya immediately. There are many Filipinos in Winnipeg. I'm like, oh, what yes. brought them there? They go, hospitals. People mm-hmm. were working in the hospitals, and I was like, it really right. opened my eyes. And this was like 2005, four. Yeah. And I remember him yeah. telling me, I think his name was Alex. He's like, there are these things here, and there's a big Filipino community, and he, it was big. And after going through this, our podcast, you had mentioned, where are the people immigrating to? And nursing, the healthcare profession, was one of the reasons why people came to Canada, right. Filipinos immigrated to Canada. I just find it so intriguing. Right, 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 right. Like a quick history of kind of, at least in Canada, three major waves, you know, and now there's like a new wave, but the first wave was really white and blue collar workers that had first come into Canada, and they were usually in the 1960s or, or sorts, if not a little bit earlier. But then in the 70s and 80s, did the sending regime from the Philippines change, and it allowed, if you will nurses from the Philippines to come to Canada. And it was cheap at the time, at least according to my parents, you know, and I I think as I see you kind of nodding your head, you (laughs) you probably have heard similar stories about that. And then, of course, that turned to domestic workers afterwards once they started to put caps on the number of Filipinos coming in. But Filipinos, being the creative people we are found and resourceful, had decided, okay, well, we'll come over as domestic workers and then later take advantage of that program and, and gain citizenship. And then, of course, those programs have kind of changed along the way, affecting immigration from the Philippines. But yeah, like a number of Filipinos have come here as nurses and through the healthcare profession. But I think to myself, what does that say about the Philippines and our culture? You know, and that's Mm -hmm. kind of like the question that I kind of pose to you as well as to our listeners. And to me, it kind of says that we prize caring labor. And in some ways, we participate in the global care economy, especially as nurses. Oh, yeah. And that's kind of what I think about. I think lately I've been kind of reading up on how the world is divided up in the global north and the global south. Global north being industrialized, westernized nations and the global south. You know, the Philippines and other countries developing what we would consider developing or second world nations or even third world nations for that matter, we would call the global south because they are below a particular parallel or latitude in the world. And Philippines made it a policy to do a lot of human capital export and among them being care in a lot of ways. So if it's not domestic work, at least in the past, it's been through nursing. And I think that that's interesting. Like we are centered on that. What do you think about that? Like, no, I totally like, agree with that. Does... My mom was always, you know, I am proud to be a nurse. And she said, like, that profession is about caring and helping people feel better, uh, sound body and mind. And she really was stressed. And there was such respect from my family in the Philippines and, like, my grandfather, my Lolo, just like, oh, you know, you're a nurse in in America. (laughs) My mom would be like, North America, (laughs) Canada. But, yeah, and it was just revered and very accomplished. My mom has, oh, my God, we were in Niagara. My mom has this (laughs) picture, a grad picture of her, like, in a total, like, major flip, 80s flip haircut. And she's wearing the Uh, little hat. 
like her grad. You're gonna have to send that to me. I'd it's love so to see it. It's super cute. My mom's like, I cannot stand my hair, but I'm like, you look super cute with the little hat, and there's mm. such pride. And for us, it was such a big thing for her graduation and her doing so well. It was like us really being embraced by the Canadian Canada. My parents were like, oh my right. gosh, coming here, it works. We decided to immigrate. We can have a better life for yeah. our family. Yeah, and totally. For many years, and she, it's really respected. And even like, I remember watching a Filipino movie with Dolphe, and his mm-hmm. daughter in the movie was like, "No, you're gonna go, and you're gonna go to Canada, and you're gonna be a nurse. That's a great goal." And they kept on saying mm-hmm. it, and my mom would smile and like she showed a tickle. And she's like, "See." Even Dolphy's kids <laughs> think it's important to become a nurse and right. healthcare worker. I just, yeah. it, it's, you're right. It's care. And it, it, there is an angle on hospitality. And I think you have mentioned before that, like, it leads to a bit of, like, how do you, like, articulate this, Kuya? Like, a positive stereotype about Yeah, it, it is very much thoughts? a positive yeah. bias right. about Filipina nurses. Mm-hmm. There's this, because we've prized it and there's so many of uh, Filipina nurses in the healthcare systems across North America, if not across the world, and because, we, quote unquote, we're diligent and hardworking and all of this stuff and that, you know, as your mom says, that she's proud of doing it and she's proud of doing her work, or certain positive biases about Filipino nurses have occurred over the last number of decades. And I remember Joe Coy kind of joking about that, you know, where he says in the middle of a comedy routine, like, oh, it's so great that you're all here. I feel sorry for anybody that has to go to the hospital because all the Filipino nurses are present. <laughs> so, which I think is like a funny joke, right? And Absolutely. Yet, and, you know, and I've heard people say, oh, yeah, like, I prefer to get my blood work done by the Filipino nurse. The other person just jab, jabs, jabs me and stuff like that. It's like, and it's sometimes you think to yourself, oh, that's great. But what I know is, is that if there is a positive bias in the system, then there must be a negative that's bias right. somewhere too. Mm-hmm. So that's also kind of worrisome, you mm-hmm. know, like it's kind of like another version of the model minority. Myth. Yes. And so when you think about that, it's like, it, that doesn't actually help anybody mm-hmm. in the end. Yes, there's a lot of Filipino nurses and yes, they're probably diligent and great. But making these types of comparisons can sometimes skew our thinking about it at the end of the day. And I would also say, too, that it probably skews people in terms of what it means to be Filipino. Because I think, I wonder for the average North American, let's say, how often do they run into a Filipino and how often is it more a Filipino nurse or a woman than, let's say, Filipino men for that matter, right? So. Right. I do kind of wonder kind of what kind of these positive biases do that I don't actually think that they help us in the end. They may actually hinder us at some point. But I just have to say, I really, I didn't get to say this earlier. I think it is incredible that your mom was going to school at a time when you guys were establishing yourself in a region and yet working at the same time and raising kids at the same time. Oh, yeah. That's not easy. Like, that's <laughs> not easy. Having a full life. I mean, doing school is a full-time thing. She was doing school and having a family and working mm-hmm. and maintaining and helping a community at the same time. That's incredible. And I, Tita Suze, you're amazing you know, <laughs> being able to do that. Love yeah. you, Mom. That's great. You had mentioned earlier or whatever, and I think maybe it's, this is an opportunity for us, many of those are family members and many of those who are Filipino working the front lines. During pandemic right now, I have nothing mm-hmm. but respect and applause and just 
for the hard work they're doing right now, and especially during this pandemic, they're the frontline workers, they're the frontline staff caring for people that are struck with COVID and dealing with the pandemic and, and everything else for them to be the front workers and sacrificing every day just to do their job. I think we tip our hats off to you. We yes. give you like, thanks, like, thank you so much for continuing with your jobs. I, I, yeah. I can't imagine like you guys are really, really the lauded heroes during this there's, crazy time. There's much gratitude around that. Yeah. You know, one of my cousins is a nurse and mm. she couldn't go to my parents' renewal of vows because, oh. you know, just to be kind of mindful about that kind of stuff. Parents had renewed their vows a couple of weeks ago. It was a really beautiful ceremony uh-huh. held in church you know, <laughs> by a Filipino priest. And it was wonderful. And we were all social distance and all that stuff. There was no reception. We said that once the pandemic's over, we'll have a 50 years and going party Ooh, with them. A blowout, um, as we call it. Yes, that's right. A blowout. Yeah. But, you know, my, one of my cousins had, had declined because she's nursing and mm. didn't want to kind of possibly spread any type of infection just in case. It's not only just the nurses that are making the sacrifice. I would say the Philippines is making the sacrifice too, because what I had learned, at least in some of our research coming up to this particular episode is is that despite the Philippines producing tens of thousands of nurses, Mm -hmm. it currently has a shortage of nurses in the Philippines. And the reason why is because the majority of those Filipino nurses are tending to the sick all over the world. And so when I talked earlier about about the global north and the global south, here's the global south, in this case, the Philippines, sending tons and tons of workers when people back home, people back in the Philippines are also needing care too. So sacrifice, yeah. And so it just pains me just a little to know too that there are people back in the Philippines that probably could use that care that aren't receiving that care because they've been, if you will, exported around the world. So. Something to just kind of meditate or contemplate on. Kind of getting back to your original point, Sigs, like caring is hard work. And oh, yeah. I would say that those in your life who provide care need respite. And nursing is a form of professional care when I think about it. Yeah. But this pandemic has shown us that care is at the heart of everything. Just before we got to taping, Sigs, you were saying how you had to like balance the muting button, right? While you were taking care of one of the kids <laughs> as you were participating in work, like you're providing care, Emily's providing care, me getting things for my parents at the Home Depot is care, my sister's getting my parents their groceries, you know, <laughs> every week, that's care. I would say all of that is carrying labor and it goes unrecognized. And so my fixing of the week is those in your life who provide care need some type of respite. So give them a break. To those that you know who provide care to the important people in your life, I think they would appreciate some type of break. And so if you can give it to them, give it to them. That's the fixing of the week. I don't think that there's much more to say except to take us out, Sigs. Hey guys, I hope you like this episode. If you watch Rash It, share with us and tell us what you know. And hey, if you want to give a shout out to anyone, a loved one, whether it's nursing or whatever in the healthcare industry, like we just propped up for, let us know. Email at us, holoholopopculture at gmail.com. We're on all podcast platforms. Download, subscribe, rate us, leave a review. We greatly appreciate it. You can find us on social media at Twitter. Our handle is at holoholopop. And we're on Instagram at holoholopopculture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chelch Ringen. We'll see all of you guys again soon. See you guys.